Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Margaret Leoy, former Chief Executive Officer of Chamber Music America. We hope you enjoy. wonderful gentlefolk. Welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. It's season two and it's our first episode. Our co-pilot today is the wonderful Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you today, my dear? Hello, Rosie. I'm doing really well. How are you? I am doing just dandy. Thank you very much. Now today we are actually having a little bit of a departure for the beginning of season two uh, from bringing in composers or chamber ensembles, but actually bringing in an absolute wonderful person who has had a huge impact on the chamber music uh, arena in America for the past 21 years. And that is the incredible Margaret Leoy. Now, Margaret Leoy joined Chamber Music America as their CEO in June 2000, and she has just stepped down from that position this summer after a fantastic tenure. She began her career as a professional pianist and holds a master's degree in piano performance from the New England Conservatory and then further got an MBA in arts administration from Binghamton University, SUNY. Before coming to CMA, she has held several administrative posts in the arts, including being the Director of Development for the Spolito Festival in the US, Senior Director of External Affairs for the Public Theatre New York Shakespeare Festival, and the Executive Director of the Eleanor Naylor Dana Charitable Trust. Margaret has served on the Board of Advisors for the Sphinx Organization and is also an adjunct faculty member for the MA Program for Arts Management and Entrepreneurship at the New Schools College of Performing Arts. So without further ado, we are so excited and grateful to introduce Margaret Leoy to you all. Hi, Margaret. How are you doing this evening? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Oh, just dandy. Thank you so much for asking. So... As always, let's launch into the questions and some discussion. Your 21-year tenure as Chief Executive Officer of Chamber Music America has been marked by your leadership on establishing policy and practices that promote access, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in an industry that has historically promoted Western European music and musicians. This has led to the organization focusing on equitable distribution of grant funds, representation among board and staff members, and importantly, visibility through CMA's quarterly magazine and annual conference. So this brings me to the question, did you have this vision for the organization when you arrived in 2000, or did this vision develop uh, through specific experiences? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure 
quite where to begin, but I came to Chamber Music America from the public theater. And the person that I worked for at the public theater was a man named George C. Wolf, who is a producer and director and writer, and in my opinion, a genius. And he was, he himself is African American. And when he came to the public theater, he was very clear about the public theater needed to be the theater of inclusion. And this was in the sort of early 1990s when the word inclusion had not really been used in the context of the arts. And so I was there for seven years and working so closely with him and with all of my colleagues at the theater, it was a very racially diverse group of people. I just became accustomed to thinking in a different way, um, making sure that my staff was racially diverse, diverse in terms of gender, you know, things that at that time were not spoken of so much. So I was there for seven years and I feel that I got a really good grounding in this kind of thinking and this kind of work. So when I came to Chamber Music America, it was a very different environment from the public theater, just in every possible way. And it had, uh, of course, been started in 1977 by classical musicians. And its, its rich history was based in Western European classical music, primarily. We had always had some jazz musicians, particularly in our commissioning program, but there was not uh, uh, an entire program devoted to jazz. And that program actually uh, had begun just before I arrived. <clears throat> I love to take full credit for it, but I have to say it was already in process. Um, and even in the jazz program, however, one would think, because it's an African-American art form, that all of the participants, all of the people who would apply for grants would be primarily people of color. And that actually was not the case for quite a few years. And mm. I think it was not until really 2015 or 16 that we started, we organizationally, realized how many of our grants were, how many of all of our grants were going primarily to uh, white males. And when we realized that, because you know, when you are making grants and all of our grants are uh, selected through a peer panel process, most of them through anonymous listening. And so people don't know who they are adjudicating, they just adjudicate them primarily on how they play. So when we looked at the way the grants were being distributed, we said, 
Well, why is that? Why is it that so many grants, when we have this process that is as fair as it could possibly be, how is this happening? And we realized that most of the applicants were white males. And then we wondered, well, why is that? And then, then it started to get very interesting because then we realized, okay, here we have a jazz program, but how are we reaching out to the jazz community to even get applicants? And we realized we were going through channels that we were accustomed to from our classical program. So we were going through conservatories and we were going through arts councils and, and people who were accustomed to the grant application process were getting the information. And when we realized that, that was a huge revelation to all of us. And then we began to really question ourselves, question every aspect of reaching out to communities, making sure that the language of the guidelines was understandable and accessible. Um, and through this and through working with our board, I think then the, the vision for employing equitable practices within the organization really solidified. And so um, I, I have gotten an enormous amount of credit for this work, but I, I must take a lot of that uh, praise and give it to the board that was so um, committed to learning how to change from within. That's a very hard thing to do. So I, I wouldn't say, to, to answer your question, I wouldn't say that I came to Chamber Music America with a vision for equity. But I will say that coming from the background that I had, to Chamber Music America was uh, an eye opener of how this field was not quite as inclusive. It's really powerful. It's, it's really powerful too, to consider how just the, the systems that you use to communicate the availability of grants plays into systemic racism and systemic um, issues in terms of accessibility. Yes, absolutely. On that same note around jazz, um, can you talk a little bit about the intersections between chamber music and jazz, um, like some of the characteristics and the goals and the challenges that tie both of those together? And if you wouldn't mind also maybe even extending a little bit and um, sharing a little bit about your thoughts on other genres and styles that you feel our industry should be integrating into the small ensemble community. Well, I'll start by telling you a, a story of my interview for this position. Um, it was with quite a few board members. It was my final, final interview. And one of the, you know, everyone had a different question for me. And one of the board members asked me, do you think jazz is chamber music? And I thought, 
what an odd question that is to ask. There must be something going on here <laughs> because right. that's not a question that would normally spring to mind. And I had, of course, you know, done my homework for the uh, interview and I knew that they had just accepted a grant from the Dorsey Charitable Foundation. And the way I answered it is, is really what I believe, believed then and continue to believe, which is our founders in 1977, primarily um, the wonderful musician who passed recently, Michael Jaffe, who was also the founder of the Waverly Consort. So here is an early music icon. Uh, maybe at the time he wasn't an icon, but certainly now. Um, who made the definition that uh, chamber music is um, music for small ensembles between two and 10 musicians with one musician per part, generally without a conductor. That was the definition in 1977, and we have never changed it. And so in answering the question, do I think jazz is chamber music? Uh, I said to the board at that time, well, if you really take the, your own definition, then jazz ensembles fit perfectly into that configuration. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have, uh, I think, modified in our literature is calling the music jazz or classical chamber music, not saying jazz mm -hmm. and chamber music. This is, mm -hmm. you may get many, many angry letters after this because this, this has always <laughs> been a, a real point of contention that what we say at Chamber Music America is, if you take our definition of chamber music, then it can be classical music, jazz, culturally specific music, percussion, vocal. There was nothing in the definition. There has never been anything that has said, uh, and it must include music from 1450 to, you know, 1870. And from my perspective, there really is no difference between a classical musician or a jazz musician or an indigenous music performer. Mm -hmm. Those people, all of them, if you ask them, what's the most important thing to you? They will probably say performing or composing. Then they will say, I'd really love to own my home. I'd really love to send my child to college. You know, yeah. all of these things that everybody wants in his or her life. And so mm -hmm. to, um, to sort of separate those human desires and say, well, only people who play this kind of music can be in this organization that is supporting chamber music. It just has never seemed logical. Mm -hmm. 
And on the subject of grants and grant making, this is a significant focus of CMA's work as a national service organization, awarding $1.2 million in this past year alone. Now, CMA's grant programs fund performances, interdisciplinary projects, commissions, residencies, workshops, recording sessions, and probably <laughs> a conglomerate of everything else. So... The question with this is, what do you believe should be the primary goal for any grant program? Oh, goodness. The primary goal, I think, for all of our grant programs is to empower artists to make performance opportunities for themselves. So through our commissioning programs, if, you, uh, if you're a classical ensemble and you like to commission composers. That is making a performance opportunity for yourself. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, you're enriching the repertoire. If you're a jazz artist, the same thing. Usually the composer is the band leader and they are um, you know, enriching their own repertoire, which they will play for years and years and years. And our, certainly our residency program, does the same thing. It empowers the artists to make opportunities for themselves because the artist is at the core of everything. And I am a great believer in sort of hammering that point whenever I have the opportunity. I was somewhere, and I oh, wish I could remember where I heard this because it is not original, but someone said, if you take care of the artists, they will take care of you. And I believe that so strongly that uh, one of Chamber Music America's, I mean, we were founded by artists. So uh, one of our most important tenants that we always think about is the, the sustainability of the artists. What, what can we do to benefit artists to the fullest? And I think every grant program that we have has that in mind. Now to actually keep within the same, uh, the same realm uh, of money and the arts, fundraising, of course, is the other side of grant making. So would you mind talking about what some of the most important details are to remember when developing a fundraising strategy? Fundraising that truly is my favorite subject. You know, um, we were, I was talking to people as my um, successor is being selected. And someone said to me, you have a passion for chamber music. And I said, yes, but I have a real passion for fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't have a real passion for fundraising, uh, you're not going to do it. Um, you know, it's some people just think it's the most horrible thing. And I think it's I think it's a puzzle uh, that I just love to find the right pieces for. So 
a good fundraising strategy? Well, I mean, there are, there are many fundraisers who have written brilliant books about this, far more brilliant than anything I would say. But I think it's really important in one's fundraising to not put all of your fundraising eggs in one basket, to really try to diversify where your funding stream is coming from. So if you are able, because a lot of our ensembles are not incorporated as nonprofits, so they don't do a lot of fundraising uh, through foundations or government. And government agencies, I don't be, at least the NEA, you may not apply with a fiscal sponsor. Okay. So that's just off, you know, you just can't do it. But mm. uh, I think with some foundations, you can. So if you are, you know, looking for foundation grants, that's only one aspect. There are so many other aspects there. There are the people who come to your concerts and turning them into, you know, really dedicated contributors. There's all kinds of online digital tools for fundraising that Actually, uh, I probably am a little um, behind the curve on that. I mean, aren't we all? <laughs> my, well, my staff is not, let me put it that way. But I think that's an important thing for people to think mm -hmm. about. The other thing is um, my first administrative job at the Spoleto Festival, the chairman of the board said, and you know, you hear this at every fundraising conference that you go to, is people don't give to causes, people give to mm -hmm. people. Yep. And it mm -hmm. really is so true that the just developing relationships with people uh, is, first of all, it's like a nice thing to do. You know, <laughs> it's enjoyable <laughs> uh, and you learn a lot when you get to know people. But also, I think it builds, it builds the bridge between your organization or what it is that's important to you and the funding entity. Then after that, you have to be uh, incredibly detail-oriented. It's a very detailed <laughs> job. You know, you, you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to send the wrong letter by mistake to the person that just gave you a big gift because you put it in the wrong envelope. You know, I speak from experience. So, uh, you know, oh, goodness. fortunately, I learned that early in my career. I don't know if that's answered your question. I, I think a lot of it is common sense. Uh, a lot of it is keeping um, apprised of things that are happening outside your field, because you can learn a lot, you know, from reading the newspaper about how the stock market is doing or, you know, how the political situation is. That was one thing as a, mm. when I was a musician that I was so bad at. I never knew what was going on in the mm -hmm. world. It was not important mm -hmm. to me. I only was interested in my music. 
it wasn't until I mm -hmm. went to school for my MBA that I realized what a deficit I had in just knowing what was happening in the world around me. But once I understood that, and once I kind of learned how to pay more attention to it, that has helped tremendously in uh, fundraising all of these years. I, I cannot emphasize that enough, how important that is. Most students don't anticipate having a career as a CEO of a national service organization when they go and pursue a master's degree in piano performance. Um, so I'm wondering what prompted you to pursue the MBA and then ultimately a career in arts administration? When uh, So I was primarily uh, an accompanist. I have my degree in piano performance uh, and I love the vocal mm -hmm. repertoire um, and had a few um, people that I accompanied over many, many mm -hmm. years. But, you know, unless you are at the super top of your profession, you can't really make a living just doing one thing, right? And even our musicians, I see that with all of our members, they're doing a thousand different jobs. And I was too. Mm -hmm. I had a private piano studio. I accompanied ballet classes. I mean, you know, you name it. I had an, uh, a church job on Sundays. <laughs> it was everything was, was in there. And for about 10 years, I loved it. Then mm -hmm. I had turned 30 and I thought, am I ever going to be able to own a home? Am I ever going to be able to go on a vacation? Yeah. I'd never been able, you know, when you're a freelancer, you, you don't want to ever turn down a job because you might not get asked yep. again, right? So um, right, I, right. I thought, okay, I want to I rethink what I'm doing. And one of the jobs that I had was I was the principal pianist in the Binghamton Symphony. I was living in Binghamton, New York. And the manager of the symphony was dating a woman who was getting her MBA in arts administration. I had never heard of arts administration. And we, you know, we were friends. And she was telling me she had been an English major uh, and, you know, very into literature mm -hmm. and had decided to get her MBA in arts administration. And she was so smart. You know, she just knew everything that was going on in the world and could explain it. And, and I thought, I wonder if I could ever be like that. You know, maybe, maybe I should 
just change direction, not give up the arts. I never wanted to give up the arts. So I decided to apply to the program, um, the MBA in Arts Administration program at, at the time, SUNY Binghamton. Mm-hmm. One of the great uh, parts of that program was in your final semester, you had to have an internship and you had to get it yourself. They didn't find the internship for you. Another classmate uh, who was from South Carolina said, uh, well, why don't you, she said to me, why don't you apply to the Spoleto Festival? Wow, you know, I'd never been south of Washington, D.C. I thought, oh, this, you know, this will just be, it'll be an adventure. Miraculously, the director of development uh, wrote me back and said, oh, I'm going to be in New York City. If you're going to be there, we can meet. So, of course, I went there. I had to borrow clothes to go on an interview, too. You know, I will never (laughs) forget that. Didn't, you know, I didn't wear suits. I mean, it was just a different way that I was living. And he hired me to be his first ever intern. And uh, of course, I went down. And then after a couple of months before my internship was even over, he asked me to be the associate director of development when I graduated. Have had the really wonderful good fortune of having some great jobs, uh, you know, and capping it off with Chamber Music America. I can't, I can't. I can't think of anything. I don't think there's anything to do after this, which is why I'm retiring. I can't think of anything else to do. I think that's great. And I think that gives us an awful lot of hope for the future, uh, especially of small ensembles, but just of music and the arts in general. So Without further ado, lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of season two with the incredible and wonderful Margaret Leoy. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And congratulations on an amazing go of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Billy Childs and Jeff Scott and performed by Billy Childs and the Acropolis Requinto. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.